interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Hello, everybody, and welcome back yet again to the Private Equity Podcast. Joining us today is Trevor Ewan, CEO of Southport Technology Group and partner at Southport Ventures. An interesting mix today of portfolio and investment work. Welcome and thank you for sharing your insights with us today, Trevor. Thanks for having me, Alice. So as we usually kick off, if you can give us a kind of 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Yeah, sure. So my background's in software engineering something that I was interested in for my entire life and kind of fell into in 2009, 2010, hard time to get a job for a lot of folks. And it was a place where people were still hiring. And so I decided to double down on it. And from there, just took it and ran with it and got halfway decent at uh, my craft, but also there was a bit of a rising tide in the market. So, you know, at that time, it was it's almost hard to remember, but I always felt like we were treated more like accountants. You know, those are the IT guys, they're back there, they're service providers. And what happened, I would say around 2012, 2013, is just a huge wave of startup activity, new entrepreneurial activity, and the realization that software and an engineering strategy was going to be pivotal to that. And as a result, you know, engineers got one salaries got bumped up, which was obviously very nice, but we also got moved to more of the strategic sides of business. And that exposed me to more things I'd want to do, more of the kind of businesses I'd want to work in, and did give me a bit of a red carpet just to go into new opportunities because people were looking to move forward in their tech strategy. Interesting. So what one mistake do you kind of see private equity firms or their kind of portfolio companies? Because you've got an interesting blend on both sides. Uh, what mistakes do you see them making and kind of what actions would you take to correct them? I mean, it'd be different depending on size. So I'd say at the the large end, I would say the, the biggest mistake is just not taking a look at this as part of your strategy. So you could over rely on say the you know financial engineering, which is important, but not just take a look at, hey, we've got these existing vendors. They're not really doing anything or arguably they're bad for business. They might even be hampering growth in some places. So that's a lot about just taking a look at everything in the company, in the portfolio companies, and just say, why are we spending money on this? What are we doing? What's our long-term strategy? I'd say as you go farther down market, you just have a tendency to either way overemphasize technology. So technology can solve every problem. That's what you tend to see in software businesses and much newer businesses, or a complete underemphasis on technology. And I'd say that's the side of the market that we're a little bit more interested in, which are firms, private equity groups who actually do great stuff. They do great operations management, great work in their industry, but they just not even thought about how do we unify these firms, these acquisitions across a technology stack or just across a standard strategy that allows us better reporting and better tools for them, you know, to make them more efficient. And I'd say that's that's a part of the market that is just quiet, is kind of sleepy, other than a lot of white label software things off the shelf. There's not a lot of those firms trying to invest in, say, building a bit of a software edge. And I think that's where we can come in and uh, be quite a value to them. Okay. So one of the things you spoke just before we jumped onto the recording of the podcast was obviously, you know, Southport Technology Group and then Southport kind of ventures and you having both um, elements of also investing in, in firms, but also running a software outsource software provider. And one, one of the things you said was interesting was you're both working with private equity firms to support them with their business, um, but also supporting the kind of portfolio companies. So what are you seeing kind of private equity firms doing to, to kind of utilize technology more? 
Yeah. Well, I think I think as a newer generation of managers and operators comes into the mix, there's an inevitable just drift towards more and more family businesses and older operations are getting acquired. And they're actually, you know, great businesses, but obviously the next generation comes around, whether or not that's an acquirer or even say, you know, this isn't a private equity context, but even the next generation, say someone who's inherited a business, their strategy will rarely ever exclude some kind of major technical overhaul of the business. And a lot of this stuff is just the basics, the normal stuff where you, you have to have a sales process in place. You know, you have to have CRM, tools for managing inventory. You have to have an ERP system, all these kind of things that I think we're pretty familiar with. But then on top of that, there's going to be a next level okay, well, this is how we're doing lead gen. Is that really that efficient? You know, we've got all these people on the payroll that we're doing for that. Uh, this is the way we're doing outreach. Uh, government compliance is a big one we see a lot of opportunity in because it tends to be a more bespoke problem. So, you know, nobody's building the compliance solution that deals with, you know, every kind of state in the U.S. for their particular, say, I don't know, manufacturing regulations or environmental regulations. Like sometimes you just have forms to fill out. You have PDFs you have to submit. So I'd say those are the kind of things that we'd like to zero in on is figure out what's that that unique problem that is just slowing down your back office. And then at the uh, firm level, it's about, okay, what, what do you want to standardize across the portfolio? And then how do you want that to feed back into your reporting? And I think that's that's where we've seen some of the coolest ideas is, you know, they actually come from the firms themselves. They're not originally our ideas, but they say, you know, what we want to do is to get this number, this metric right out of our accounting system for every single firm in the portfolio. And then we want to have it go to this one place. And, you know, on one hand, if you're an individual paying for it, it would seem like a lot of money, but from the perspective of a PE firm, this is not a lot of money for them to do, but they just have to get organized around it, get strategic and understand what they're actually trying to accomplish with their reporting goals or their standardization goals. Well, we know how much private equity guys love their data and information, uh, and oh, it's yeah. all about building that and putting it in the same place so you can measure and uh, look at things. And I suppose it's all about, you know, do we need a person doing this and pulling this data together, or can we have a, a piece of software building that out? Exactly. And that's the wedge, right? So you come in. Yeah, I mean, you're always going to appeal to people on the things that they value the most, but then slowly they're going to realize, wait a minute, we've got this other process we're doing, why don't we just automate that? So we say, okay, great. You know, let's let's build it onto the side of the existing system or we'll build something new. You know, we love that iterative process where we're learning about the business as we go through it. And there is some, you know, necessity as the mother of invention in many cases here. A lot of the recent interest has just come from the fact that some of the portfolio companies are being forced to take new paths uh, in their technology adoption, right? So they have a manual workflow and it's the government regulator or sometimes it's a big company like Amazon or Google who's saying, nope, you can't do that manual workflow anymore. You have to be communicating with our APIs. You have to be communicating with our system. And all of a sudden there's a mad dash to get it done. So that's the other side of it that we see. It's just, they, you know, and, and at that point they're, you know, they're ready to go, right? They're, they're three months away from some kind of deadline they need to hit. And, uh, you know, we say, okay, we'll, we'll get you, we'll get you up to speed. We'll build out the solution. But once again, it's the same kind of wedge. Because once they see, oh, wow, that didn't cost that much money, we got it out the door, all of a sudden they say, there's all these other things we can do around the portfolio. And they start, you know, uh, I guess you could say justifying it with the operational budget. So, and you've transitioned, I think it's an interesting transition. I don't know, I don't know if anybody who's been a, I'll speak to a lot of people, but I don't know anyone in private equity that's been a software engineer, developer, and then kind of made that transition to now obviously investing as a private equity firm in B2B SaaS. How have you kind of made that transition and how did that kind of come about for you to, to do that? 
Yeah, so uh, our expertise is definitely in the software and product realm, and uh, we don't shy away from that. And the place where we go out and get the most advice would be just on more of the traditional PE, uh, you know, negotiating and financial side of the deal. And we are still early in that journey relative to where we are on software and product, where you know we have pretty expert knowledge on those things. And and I think that's that's interesting. There's a certain kind of investor who is very enthusiastic about this, especially that we're looking at software companies. I think they'd be more concerned if we were going off into a different industry, food and beverage or distribution or something like that. But given that we are, they if we're getting inbound leads, we tend to get the most stuff about, hey, this company has a technical problem and we haven't been able to find anyone else who might be able to give it a good, strong look. The other reality is we can adjust the economics a little bit because we can come in, you know, if we're operating initially, we can come in and you know play a CTO role for a little while, which can be frankly very expensive at the lower end of the market, and and something that can knock a lot of deals out of whack. Okay, no, it's different. Uh, definitely a, a very different approach, and having somebody who's kind of been in the market to then help these businesses grow, I think is really interesting. I mean, technology at the moment is a a big word, uh, and certainly an area that VCs poured money into. Why do you why do you think in particular the software market? Is is so hot, and now why so many private equity firms I certainly see starting to pay attention and starting to make investments? Yeah, I think I, you know I think durable recurring revenue is very attractive, and the pandemic did a lot to well, just in general, you know, increase asset prices all around. But I think the you know increase was lumpy, right? You know, I, I'm sure you could get a few hotel chains at a discount right now, whereas uh, SaaS and Anything that's kind of fully remote has this automated nature to it is really hot. I think the other thing that people like about it is it's very asset light. You know, you have the high margins. And I also think from an acquisition perspective, it's well, famous last words, right? But I do think it's a little bit easier to integrate. You know, you're not talking about taking over physical locations. In many cases, you're talking about a product that exists entirely in the cloud. Uh, that has an existing code base, which can be messy, but it's also something that can easily be acquired, right? So I think when you add up all the values of the software market, just the fact that it exists in this virtual space, it has super high margins, you know, the recurring nature of it, the fact that it has pretty high lock-in, especially if you're looking at B2B SaaS, it's it's kind of a no-brainer business at this stage. Uh, now, I do think there's definitely some headwinds and we can talk to that. And, you know, I think the biggest one that I see on the radar right now, which is just something that it's going on in the press a lot. It's just talent is very tough, right? And so this is almost entirely scaffolded on the backs of people who know what they're doing in this business. And if you can't get those people, then you've also got a problem. Makes sense. Makes sense. So with so many kind of technology companies appearing, disappearing the next day, maybe not as short as that, but what 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 kind of in your opinion do you feel makes a good investment in a software business? Yeah. So we, we definitely like stickiness and that's probably a no-brainer for your audience, but we're looking at products that are, you know, it's, it's why we're not a big fan of the D2C market uh, because consumers are incredibly fickle. I mean, you know, I'm sure you couldn't even tell me what were your key platforms that you were using nine years ago, right? And I'm sure it's a different, different list than it is today, right? Businesses, on the other hand, will... Uh, make a long bet on something in part just because it's it's really hard. It's the, the old turning the aircraft carrier problem. And so we like we like tech that's very strongly embedded into the business. One of the best things we like is a big API focus of the software. So 
And that's something that the other developers on the other side of the transaction will, you know, make an active investment in developing around your API, right? And that's not a, it's not a rock solid guarantee, but what it is, is it's assets on that side of the business that are dedicated to, you know, providing business to you. So that's, that's a huge point of the stickiness that we look for all the time. A company that, you know, they're kind of a darling in general. So I, I, I don't think I'd be the first person to say this, but Stripe really did a great job getting the playbook together on this because they focus so much on developer documentation and making their API incredibly easy to use. And then that was just a, it was, it was almost like a grassroots push to make the company so successful because I, as a developer who's integrated payment solutions many times, I always want to in- integrate Stripe. Like that's always what I want to do because it's the best one. It's the easiest one to do. They make it super simple. They've got all the security figured out for you, right? They really took on the load. And so what we want to do is find, you know, if you think about them, different, different villages, we want to find a village with a nice strong wall and they hold back as much as the painful part inside the wall of the village, right? And then that way you could just say, okay, we're just throwing it over to Stripe. We're just throwing it over to this API. We're throwing it over to this service provider who uh, does that lift for us. So that's the kind of durable durable lock-in that we want to see. I mean, the other, the other would be a really, really strong vertical niche that you just have all the knowledge of, right? And it's just so hard for somebody else to break into that. We're, we're less interested in some of the horizontal software plays. I mean, I use project management systems every day and I spend money on project management systems every day, but I've also used probably 15 in the last 10 years. So we're concerned about the drift in some of those things and a new VC funded uh, Titan can just kind of come in and, and wipe out market share. As you've seen with a lot of even darlings today, I'm just not sure how long they'll be. So strong vertical plays and strong lock-in on the API side is what is what we target all the time. That's interesting, actually. And the fact that you mentioned so much about the B2B, I'm just thinking about, you know, rule selection and us changing. Uh, I've changed CRM once and uh, I never want to have to do it again. Um, it was a complete lot of <laughs> yeah. pain. And I know CRM systems are a lot more cumbersome, but the one I had was was really, really poor. And unfortunately, I chose badly there. But, you know, we, when we made that swift switch across, yeah, I never wanted, I never want to do that ever again. I mean, fortunately, I'm very happy with our CRM. It's very good. But... You know, changing software in a business isn't just as simple as, you know, downloading a new app on a phone um, and taking your attention somewhere. Um, There's a whole infrastructure that needs to be built around it and how it works. So, yeah, it does make a lot of sense of of why, you know, the the consumer, the B2C market can be so fickle, whereas the B2B market has to consider a lot when looking to make a change. Yeah. And and just another note on that, I think we would look for something that's also embedded in the culture of the customers. I mean, that's a huge one, right? So for me, I'm a big training and standard operating procedure kind of guy. And just think about it, the amount of training materials I would do around different platforms. I'm going to have a good long thought about my dedication to that platform before I put in our training materials, because now those are going to even outlive the platform choice. And one good example for us, we're software people. We use GitHub, right? And GitHub has really good private plans. But the truth is, we are so firmly embedded in the GitHub workflow. I shouldn't shouldn't say this, but they could probably triple or quadruple their prices, and you know we wouldn't move because they are so much a part of all of our training documentation, all you know, all of our videos, so much of the way we run the firm, right? So that that level of just you know complete investment gives them massive pricing power, but just staying power in general. You know, we're not going to have a slow month and say time to, you know, cancel the GitHub subscription. It's just not happening. I suppose that comes down to the kind of reliance on the software and and you know the I don't know the, the right word here, but the, the actual usage um of it. So it's using and solving many different problems, many different different issues. 
and the business finds it so valuable. It'd be a bit like recruiters with LinkedIn. You know, LinkedIn yeah. keeps increasing prices. I don't get to see LinkedIn's uh, uh, cost and usage and whatever else, but I'm going to guess that recruiters just aren't going anywhere uh, for, for certainly on that platform. And unfortunately, it's slightly overused uh, for a lot of recruitment firms. But yeah, it can be a good, a good example of something where they went down a B2C route and then switched around and were like, we're missing out here. We need to go B2B, uh, do advertising, yeah. everything. I'm, I'm sure the advertising revenue is bigger, but yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and markets like that have winner-take-all dynamics. GitHub was so smart. I mean, I, they're, they're a great, you know, just case study of a brilliantly run product because they really targeted the open source world. And, you know, that would have looked like craziness to say, oh, you're just giving your product away for free to all these people. But what they got was lock it with so many people like me who at the time were, what, you know, people in their 20s running these little open source projects. And now actually they're running the budget for a firm that's going to keep using GitHub probably in a perpetuity, right? You know, unless they do something drastic with it. And it is, you know, one, one thing you have to be careful about with software is there's a lot of open standards. So, you know, the GitHub killer could come out tomorrow. But but to be honest, you know, I'm assuming they don't change it that much. I'm assuming there's not that much better out there. I'm probably invested in it for 20 or 30 years. And the team's only going to grow. Okay, makes sense. Um, so coming back to private equity, what do you love about private equity? Uh, and what do you dislike about it? Well, I mean, I think the, you know, there's this, the idea of renewal or the idea of giving something a new lease on life or uh, making an operational change, something that's fundamentally good, I think is is really cool. And, uh, you know, I just think that's a, a personal value I have in terms of, you know, whether it's my relationships or, or my own health or uh, my home, right? You know, I live in an old home. I'd like making sure it looks nice. So that aspect of going into a business and doing that, it's also really cool to get to the negotiation point and realize uh, the motivations of people that are not financial in nature. And of course, you know, price is the main thing you're going to battle over. But then after that, it's, we love talking to owners that we get to see and we're, and we're in, you know, much smaller part of the market where people are really worried about succession, about the uh, long-term viability of the business, about their employees, other things that we wouldn't have expected. They're, you know, really worried about, uh, making sure that someone is able to actually execute the new strategy and so much so that they want to go with you along the ride. So I've liked that a lot, you know, having been uh, involved in early stage products, startups, you know, there, that is nothing but growth, growth, growth and excitement. Uh, but there's less of that, that, that trade off of actually you're taking over something that's already good, something that already has a lot of value to it and uh, hopefully providing some more. So I think that that's more of like a, abstract take on it, but that's really the thing that motivates me about it. Uh, what do I not like? I, you know, it's tough. It's competitive. <laughs> uh, finding good deals is hard. Sourcing is tough. Uh, and I think we've developed some good systems around it, but the truth is uh, we just spend a lot of time on stuff that doesn't close. And uh, we've learned to, we've learned to really admire something from a distance, not fall in love too much uh, because you know, that next financial statement is going to come out and disappoint you and change the conversation around. Uh, but the relationship side of it is powerful and still, I'll say it's still in kind of like a pre-internet way in that so much of it still matters who we're getting to talk to. You know, we're not just going on a marketplace, only talking to brokers or anything like that. We're, we're really kind of developing personal networks that actually uh, provide deal flow. And, and that, that is very cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I've uh, been in private equity quite some time now and I've never seen anything as competitive. I remember when COVID hit and a lot of people talked to me about this kind of bit of a reset, 
numbers coming down. And obviously, you know, from a growth stocks perspective on a public basis, just went wild post that and kind of reset a little bit as we move into the value chain uh, side of things. But if we look at a private equity market, it's just like in in uh, the technology software space, it's just like nothing ever changed. Um, and it just seemed like such a reliance on that and us adopting it faster. Um, I think it's become ever more competitive. And I see a lot more private equity firms now setting up like you guys are investing in those kind of what I regard as earlier stage private equity, small cap, lower middle market type uh, um, technology firms. And everyone's kind of dipping their toe in it. So I'm not surprised to hear you say that you find it competitive. It definitely is. Yeah. And then things might be, I mean, even from our perspective, things might be a little bubblish at the moment, which is why we, you know, it's why we have Southport Technology Group, why we can be a little more patient and see what else is out there. The truth is right now, everything that we're seeing that we're actually interested in and go into any level of diligence on is something where we have exclusivity to it. Uh, and we maybe only have exclusivity for a short time period, you know, but we will look at that every time we go in a competitive bid. Now the prices get too crazy. So we're fine with that, you know, patient, patience, a model that we have, but, uh, but yeah, it, it is getting crazy out there and we are in one of the crazier markets. I will say that I think we are, there are software kind of distressed software turnarounds, maybe moving from one system to another that I think would be dubious for other people. And we will sometimes give those a second look because we, we do, possess the skills to do it but you know even that's not surefire thing for us you know it's, it's kind of like if you're you know if you're really really good um you know on the you know accounting and accounts receivable collection side of it maybe you can turn something around but you know you can never guarantee something like that so so for us we, we we're still taking a very conservative disposition but i think we will we will take a second look at those kind of deals when there's a little bit of stress in the technical side specifically I think there's a lot of firms having to take a, a little bit of a look at different things. You've seen a lot of the large cap firms raise yeah. mid cap funds um, and, and make a little bit of a change. And some of those mid cap firms start to look at lower middle market or small cap deals. So I think everybody's having to flex a little bit um, because of the competitive nature and also the amount of money that's also exists at the moment. Um, and just running straight to private equity is, is not the only option um, with angel investors, high net worth people getting involved and everything else that can happen. So it's a um, super competitive, not just in private equity, but where do you where do you raise the capital to continue growth from? Um, and is private equity the one you're going to go down the route of? Never mind the fact that private equity is super, uh, super competitive, whereas there's other, uh, other, certainly other options. So Trevor, if anybody wants to reach out to you post this uh, conversation, how best do they uh, you know, um, contact you, please? Well, they can get to me. Uh, so Trevor at stg.software is the short one, uh, or southporttechnologygroup.com is fine as well. And I'll also include uh, the page that we have uh, that's more targeted towards this market and what we do uh, in the show notes if you have them. But yeah, uh, feel free to send me an email. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, Trevor underscore Ewan. And, you know, People can just message me, whatever they want, uh, send me a LinkedIn request, and we'd love to talk to you, especially if you're selling a software company. But we'd also like to talk to you if you need some work done or even just need a second opinion on something. We do a lot of just uh, you know friendly get-to-know-you kind of meetings uh, just to develop ties in the community. And, uh, podcasting is a part of that as well. Well, well, thank you very much for joining us, Trevor. I really appreciate you know your your insight. I think it's something a bit different with somebody that's kind of come from the developer software engineering world and transitioning into that private equity, but also offering private equity firms 
the kind of advancement and development of technology. We talk a lot about the development in portfolio companies and what they need to do to change. But I do think there's still quite a few archaic private equity firms um, out there that are maybe not utilizing quite what they could be, certainly with uh, with technology. So I really appreciate you sharing all of this and, and thank you very much. Thanks, Alex. Perfect. And as always, thank you very much for joining us. And of course, if you should ever need private equity, professional or portfolio executive hiring support, please do reach out to me at Rural Selection. But till then, if you're not already, please do subscribe and you'll be notified of the next podcast, which comes out every two weeks. But thank you very much for listening and keep smashing. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com. 